In this episode of the Fly Brother Radio Show, I chat with my friend Elisa Sanders, singer, writer, and traveler extraordinaire. Born in Hollywood, California, Elisa has spent much of the past two decades in Brazil, studying voice with mentors such as Wagner Barbosa, Adriana Godoy, and Neto Costa. She sings a multilingual mix of jazz and Brazilian music, having performed in many major jazz festivals and appearing on NBC's Carson Daly Show. Elisa shares with us how her passion for travel influences her music. Throughout the episode, Elisa looks back on the days when she first hopped on a plane to live abroad as an expat, and we discuss our time living in Brazil and our unique shared experiences as black expats exploring Afro-Brazilian culture and the wider African diaspora, and Elisa's multicultural music and video series, Finding My Voice. Let's fly with singer and explorer Elisa Sanders on the Fly Brother Radio Show, right after this. Hello, 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 everybody. Ernest White II here with the wonderful, phenomenal, and fantabulous Elisa Sanders. Hello, Elisa, how are you? (laughs) well after that introduction (laughs) how are you i'm doing very well thank you so much for being here today uh before we get into our talk about being black expats in brazil i would like to just ask everyone that's watching this right now to please like this video subscribe to the fly brother youtube channel if you like travel you'll get it all here it's travel from the heart friendship connection culture it will be here and it will also be on television because Fly Brother with Ernest White II, the television travel docu-series about friendship and connection around the world is still airing on public television stations and Create TV in the United States, soon coming to streaming around the globe. But in the meantime, we are here. So again, like, subscribe, like, subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you very much. Do it, do it. Don't listen to anything else. Like and subscribe first. Like and subscribe. But. In the meantime, we are having a wonderful, we're going to have a wonderful conversation today with my very good friend, Elisa Sanders. She is an inspiration to me. We met a few years ago when I was living in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She was also living there and she has since moved to Salvador da Bahia, Brazil, which is behind me. And uh, it's in the beautiful northeast of the country. It's the uh, was the first capital of Brazil. It's got uh, it's the epicenter of Brazilian culture in general and Afro Brazilian culture specifically. And, you know, Elisa will tell us more about that. But Lisa, thank you very much for being here. And uh, I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Me too. I wonder what we're going to talk about so many topics. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Well, the main purpose of our chat, though, is to give people information about what it's like to be uh, an, a, a Black expat in Brazil. Both of us have done so. You're originally from California. And uh, if you could please tell us a little bit more about just what you do and how did you end up in Brazil? Mm, all right. Let's see. Um so I am currently, um, gosh, I don't even know what title to give myself. Um, I'm a singer and musician uh, since COVID, a composer as well. <laughs> yes, creator um, of culture, curator. Yes, traveler, writer. Um, Businesswoman. Renaissance, Renaissance woman, and I, I, I yes. feel like I'm 
have earned that one. I'll take that on. Um, but I went to Brazil the first time in uh, 1993. Okay. Before, before cell phones, we had Lonely Planet guides. Mm. And uh, I went to Brazil because when I was a teenager in Los Angeles, um, as is mandatory for pretty much every black woman, you got to read Essence magazine. And there was an article in Essence about the Sisters of the Good Death. And I remember my best friend and I looking at that and thinking, oh my God, there are black people somewhere other than the US or Africa. Like, what is it, the black people in Brazil? Like, at the time, you didn't hear anything about Brazil except, you know, Amazon, rainforest, big animals, big snakes, and things. So we had no idea that there was black culture there. And you know how you'll see something as a child and just kind of footnote it, like, I'm gonna go there one day? Yes. Well, 20 years later, here I have this opportunity. Um, I had graduated from uh, UC Berkeley with a biology degree, planning to go to med medical school. But by the time I finished college, I was like, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> You're a and healer. Yes, in that way, but you know, not, not an MD. And I just kind of instinctively knew that I needed to travel. I needed to, I needed to get away from the things that I'd known my whole life. Uh, that a lot of my answers were going to come from that. So I, uh, I literally got on a plane the day after I graduated and went to Alaska. I was there working at a national park, Denali National Park, for I think it was three or four months. Then left Alaska by uh, train, van, boat, <laughs> hiking back to the States and uh, got a job as a lifeguard in the Caribbean. Wow. And that was really the first time that I had been in a predominantly black culture that wasn't in the United States. Okay. Okay. And so it was a real eye opener. And I noticed like, you know, most of the, of the Americans and expats there were white. Hmm. Where and in the Caribbean were you? I was in the Virgin Islands. But, um, but I needed that reference because LA does not have a really large black population. Okay. And I kept getting caught in this thing, like the things I wanted to do, people kept saying, black people don't do that. And I'm like, but I'm black and I wanna do that. Like there's gotta be more to my identity as a black woman than what people are telling me. So sure. going to the Caribbean and saying, wow, there's a whole other type of black identity happening here. And I realized that because I looked like everyone there, I had this opportunity, if I didn't go around saying, hey, I'm American, to kind of, you know, be a little, uh, kind of a fly on the wall mm. in this other culture. Um, and instead of going into, which I, I think we tend to do a lot as Americans, going into it with this like, I'm an American and American way is best. And I'm gonna judge everything I see about your culture on what I know of my culture. Sure. I really wanted to go in there like, I don't want anyone to know I'm American. I, I just, I wanna see what this culture has to offer. I wanna see what I can take from this culture that works for me. And so sure. I really humble. And I was treated very differently. I had a very different experience because of that because people were so used to Americans coming in and putting them down and, you know, mm -hmm. the whole term of like calling them natives as if like, you know, this is their, they're in their home country. Like why label them? They're, you know, it, it was just, there was, there was a way that expats looked down on people who were from there. 
um, that was obvious to me. And I didn't want to be that American. And so because I chose not to be that American, I was embraced more by that culture. And I was really allowed to see things that a lot of expats didn't because I blended in. And I thought, you know what, let's keep going with this. There's other black people. Let me head south. So I went to Venezuela and uh, because- Venezuela. Venezuela. I never told you that, did I? No, no. And it is one of my, well, it was one of my favorite places to visit, you know, back into the early, until the early 2000s, I would go frequently to Caracas, where I've got friends. It's just a, I mean, it's sad what's happened to the place, but it had such style and just, it was a wonderful, like the culture, you know, the people were friendly and engaging and kind of kooky and crazy. I loved it. Caracas had everything. Yeah. yeah. And the country itself is gorgeous. It's got pieces of the Amazon. It's got, mm-hmm. you know, the Caribbean beaches, yeah. uh, the Andes cultures. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and there are blacks there, as you know, you know, yes, very the, much so. so. It was fun to be able to blend in there. And everyone thought it was from Trinidad. I was like, I'll take it um, and get to <laughs> see more of, of that culture as not an American, but just, you know, some kind of exotic black woman from somewhere. Sure. Um, and then I said, well, hey, I remember that place called Brazil that had those women from the Sisters of the Good Death. I'm in the same continent. Let me try that. So I, I made it to Manaus. Mm. Oh, actually, yeah, I made it to Manaus and then took another plane to Belém, which is really far, you know, from Salvador. Yeah. I was in Brazil. And <laughs> child. In, in the Amazon and on the outskirts of it. And the Belém is also like where the Amazon River empties out into the Atlantic Ocean. Exactly, yeah. So very tropical, very hot. Um, And I spoke no Portuguese. And no one thought I was American. And because there weren't African-American travelers traveling then. There really were very few. To Brazil. Anywhere. I mean, I don't know, maybe to the Caribbean more, people that had connections there. But like that whole kind of lonely planet backpackers thing that was happening in the 80s and 90s i very rarely met other african-americans who were doing that mm. not even very many americans there were more europeans europeans okay. and, and but um so anyway i i i figured out that i was gonna have to take a bus to salvador from Belém. from Belém. oh my gosh 33 hours and I spoke no Portuguese and I had just barely figured out how to, so you got there after this, Brazil had this currency called the Cruzeiro. Cruzeiro. And it was crazy inflated. Like the people would get paid and would go to their version of like Target and just use their entire salary in buying goods. Because if you went the next day, your money it was, was half the pr- or the price was doubled or something like yeah. the cost of it. Yeah. We had to change the prices on that. So um, they had something called the Cruzeiro, and it became so inflated that they were going to have to print like million Cruzeiro notes. So instead of that, they said, we're going to call, we're going to have a new Cruzeiro, just lop off three zeros. Imagine you go on to change, exchange money, and someone's telling you, this note that says it's 100,000 is not 100,000, it's just 100. (laughs) And I'm just like, no, don't give me that one. Don't give me any counterfeit currency. I don't want it. Wow. And so if I may ask, what had you saved money for this trip? Like how'd you fund, how'd you finance your 
escapades. Um, well, I was backpacking, so I did everything on the cheap, but I had worked in the Caribbean. At that time, I figured if I'm going to travel, I'm going to work. So I was really okay. lucky. Uh, my job in Alaska was through the Park Service, which is it used to be a great way to travel around the U.S. and and work because anyone can apply for the U.S. Park Service. They've got all sorts of entry-level jobs and also, you know, professional jobs. So there were actually quite a few college students who, you know, had just graduated or were on their summer break and they decided to see the country by uh, working at the national parks. And the Virgin Islands is part of the United States. So I was working there, saved my money. Then, you know, throw on a backpack and some Tevas, you, you take buses, that was cheap. Um, you know, you, you eat what people are eating, you know, like McDonald's was incredibly expensive and not that you want to go to McDonald's, but you do have people that, you know, they just, they want everything that they eat to be familiar, like something they know at home. So people will go to McDonald's. It's like, no, McDonald's is too expensive. You eat what people there eat, walk everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you ever get sick when you ate the food that the average person was eating? I did. I did. I ate. I don't know what kind of animal it was. They told me that it, was a, it might have been. It Got really you. might have been cat. Cat lovers. But they told me it was chicken and it didn't taste like chicken. But I was really hungry. And it was like, I don't know, it was equivalent of like a dollar. I was at the end of my trip. I was running out of money. It was my bus trip back to Belen. So another 33 hours, right? So I'm like, all right, let me let me eat this. On the roadside, I didn't go to the restaurant the bus driver said to go to. When I got to my house, I was so sick. I, I think I had cholera. And I don't oh. even know how I survived that. And just through God's grace, someone brought me water. I remember that. But I just, four days in fever and just in not a good place in a posada. And uh, I don't remember much of that. But I'm still here. Yes, you are still here and lived to tell the tale. So, <laughs> wow. And so you, <laughs> thank you, Jermaine Thomas, my girl, for uh, establishing that catchphrase in my life. Uh, and so 33 hours by bus from Belém in the north part of Brazil to Salvador in the Salvador. Now, everybody, both Elisa and I, we speak Portuguese. Uh, we learned it. My grammar sometimes is garbage, but I have a good ear for the pronunciation. And so because of that, we say a lot of things in Portuguese. So excuse the little, uh, you know, asides in Portuguese, but you went to Salvador. Tell me about that. Tell us about your experiences in this wonderful city behind you. It was really, oh, it, it was life-changing. Um, at the time I went again, there were, there were not a lot of African-Americans traveling there. There weren't a lot of Americans traveling. And so I, again, I did the thing that had worked in the Caribbean. I'm not going to tell people I'm American. I really looked Brazilian at the time. And I thought I'm going to buy some clothes that the people here wear and just kind of immerse myself. Um, and I didn't speak the language at all, which was difficult because um, if, if people have gone to Sao Paulo, Rio, you, you can pretty easily find people that speak English. Not the majority speak English, but usually the places where tourists go, you'll find some. Sure, hotels and you know, rest, a few restaurants. 
Exactly. Salvador at the time did not have a lot of English speakers. Where you would find them would be like people in the upper class, which were pretty much white Brazilians. Um, and I knew that that was not the experience that I wanted to have. I knew that I wanted to take advantage of the fact that I could blend in, that this was a city that's 85% Afro-Brazilian. And that's who I wanted to meet. That's the culture that I, I really wanted to, 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 you know, learn about. Um, and that was really difficult without the language. I felt, I remember feeling at first almost like there was this invisible barrier where I looked like everyone. I could walk down the street and not a head would turn, but I couldn't communicate, I couldn't connect. And that was kind of depressing because I was so curious, there's so much I wanted to know about this place, especially as an African-American to go to a place where, and you gotta remember back in the 90s, there were so few references to our culture outside of the United States. The whole idea of the diaspora didn't really exist. So to go to a place and see all these people that looked like me or that looked like people in my family and to find elements of the culture that were familiar in some way and to want to know why. Why is this food? Like, you guys have black eyed peas? We have black eyed peas. How'd that happen? You cook right. green? Well, we cook our greens like this. Oh, you cook your green and okra? You know, there were all these things that made me and feel like. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any of those that I know. <laughs> There's a um, lot of people turn their nose up at it and that's fine. It's still a part of our culture, nonetheless. It is, and they have it there. Yes, um, they do. <laughs> um, but what I ended up having to do was, was get into, at the time, people stayed at youth hostels, like all the backpackers went to youth hostels. Okay. And so I, I, there's a funny story about this Irish travel agent I met who's still my friend today, Connor O'Sullivan, found him in Lonely Planet, found him on a day that it was pouring torrential rain and I, I was lost in Baja trying to figure out how to get to his office. I got there like two hours later. He tells the story to this day. He said, you showed up in my doorway. You look like a cat that had been left out in the rain. You just look pitiful. He's like, I just had to take you in and help you. And so he took me to a youth hostel. But um, I, wasn't I wasn't able to connect to people, you know, and because I didn't have the language. And so sure. moving That's to That's important. I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting, Elisa. It's important when people go places Nowadays, I'm noticing they aren't taking dictionaries with them. They may yeah. not even have an app to give them a little bit of the, you know, just the 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 pleases and the thank yous and the I'm yeah. sorry's and the excuse me and, the, and, and yeah. all of that. And, you know, it's essential. It's essential if you want to really engage and connect with people, yeah. attempt, you know, try, just say, I'm sorry, I don't speak whatever language it is, or I'm sorry, do you speak English? And with humility, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've always been received, well received um, by just showing up and being humble about my own ignorance. Absolutely. So, I'm sorry it, for interrupting. I just felt like it was an important point. <laughs> and it is important because people don't expect that of Americans because we don't usually, we are usually the ones that are like, okay, speak English, why aren't you speaking English? And we are not gracious about it. Mm -hmm. and, I think it's really important and especially and I have this thing as African Americans who travel I feel like we have an opportunity <laughs> to set a better example <laughs> yes. as American travelers um, 
And it's exactly like you said, you don't have to speak fluently, but the fact that you understand that that person is not obliged to speak your language because that's right. not the language of that country, Correct. you know? And that if they do speak it, they're doing you a favor because 100%. they're create a bridge for you to be able to feel more at home. And Brazilians are great about that. Yes. But I think there's no excuse nowadays with all the technology we have, with all the access we have, learn something. Learn something. And if you can't, don't, you know, like, and I'm sure you've had this experience too. I just had this experience in Israel. I was just in Israel and, I, you know, Hebrew. Um, there it were times hard. when I'd be in a... <laughs> At the end, I was kind of under, I was able to distinguish words, but there's no way. I was there for two months. I was not going to learn the language. But I also was aware that even though most Israelis speak English, I was not going to obligate them to do that because of my presence. Sure. I was sure. in the so I learned to just sit and listen. I remember going to a meditation meeting with a friend of mine, and I'm the only American. They're like, do you want us to translate? I said, absolutely not. I love the sound of the language. And I'll figure out what I need to figure out. Mm. And so I sat there for an hour and I watched gestures. This is the thing. People speak through their gestures. They speak through their facial expressions. They speak through their body language. You can pick up the body. You learn amazing listening skills if you will allow yourself to kind of be humble. And if you don't speak the language, use other cues, mm. visual cues. Use your intuition, you know. It, it just there's there's so much that you can pick up without understanding language if you don't insist that that person speak English. Because what happens when they speak English is you're you're losing a lot. Yeah. If that yeah. person speaks fluently, you know, and and even if they do, there are words they don't tra don't translate. Saudade. É brinquedo não, an expression that was really popular because of Brazilian soap opera. If I translate that, it's not a toy. Toy. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything in English. It's not a game. I think that's an approximation, right? The way we say it's this, it's not a game. But uh, you know, obviously, you can't you can't do the the literal translation and get that same energy, can you? Yeah, and and the cultural context. Of sure, sure. You know, like I remember soap opera that came out and the character that said that, and so there's all beyond the words themselves yes there's that character that had a certain attitude and we have to and so there are all these things that are contained within language that if you don't at least open yourself to learning it mm, yes uh, preach you miss it the best parts of traveling well life is so much more than language you know and so or it's all the languages. Like you said, it's body language, it's energetic language. It's um, the, the, oh my gosh, it, it's, it's all just a series of stories, really. Mm -hmm. And yeah. to go without the verbal language, then you definitely need to engage your other senses, right? And so I, I know that we could uh, actually talk, you've had, you have extensive experience living abroad before we we finish or, or kind of go into like just your life in brazil how do you so as a musician as a singer how do you relate then travel and music travel and sound you know mm -hmm. travel and and song 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm still defining and redefining that for myself. Um, but my, my two passions, my two things that like you could take away everything but from me, but don't take away my ability to sing, mm. create a song, um, and don't take away travel. They're just something that are essential to my being. And um, they are the two vehicles through which I think uh, I, I, I grow so much spiritually, uh, emotional. It just there's, there's so much growth in both of them in different ways. And um, I, as you know, when I met you in Sao Paulo, I was working there as a singer. I had just started singing professionally because I was profoundly terrified of singing in front of people. And life just kind of kept pushing me to this place of like, no, this is what you're meant to do. And I finally stopped resisting and started singing professionally in Sao Paulo. Um, and as many artists do at first, especially jazz artists, you learn the standards and you do the jazz artist thing. And as an African-American woman in Sao Paulo, there was, there was a, a, a lot of opportunity there. But there were a series of things that I went through in life, ended up leaving Sao Paulo and just, you know, life has its way with you. And I started asking some questions about, is this, is this what I want to do? Do I just want to keep singing covers and be a jazz musician? Or do I have an opportunity to become an artist? And what I mean by artist, what that is to me is um, how can what I'm creating be imbued with who I am, mm. you know, yes. so that if you hear this song or read this piece, you're like, that's Elisa. I know that voice. And the place where I felt I was most myself and still do is when I travel. Like that's the place where I have no fear. I'm totally open to life and whatever it wants to bring me. I, my best self, I see when I travel and I thought, okay, so if I can marry my artist self with my travel self, I think that's going to be the key for me. I think that's, that's the thing I'm here to do because the things that I naturally do in travel, improvisation, drop me off. And we've talked about this. You drop me off at an airport anywhere on this planet with like a hundred dollars, come back in two months. I will have a life set up. I'll have friends, I'll have a place to live, I'll be taking my yoga classes, I'll be doing shows, I'm good. Do I have a plan? No, it's improvisation. Well, the same thing in music, except in music, it scares me. But I know how to do it. So how do you bring these things together? The communication, the listening skills that you gain traveling, especially if you don't speak the language, how you have to learn to enter the conversation, you really have to learn to listen. Well, same thing in music, especially in jazz, instruments and voice are having a conversation. So how do I listen better to those instruments? And what voice do I want to bring? Do I want to sound like this person, this person, this person, which that's an option There are people that do that and make a career of that. Or do I now take this opportunity to find what's Elisa's voice, which is a path not traveled yet, because there's no Elisa out there who's saying, hey, you, you sound like this. Do this, do this, study this. No. Right, right. No instruction manual. There's no instruction manual. There's no guide. I don't even know what it's supposed to sound like. It's a, it's a go there and figure it out, which is what I do in travel. And so I said, I just kind of intuitively felt like 
this is my next step. This is what I'm choosing to do as an artist. I want to discover my voice. I know that when I travel, I find my voice. So I'm going to marry these. And I created a project called Find My Voice. And so um, there is an artist who I adore and, and really admire who, to me, he, he has found his voice. And it includes embracing different cultures and travel. His name is Idan Rahel. He's an Israeli artist. Idan Rahel. Okay. Amazing, amazing. He's a pianist, composer, singer. But when he started off, he was all about looking at the different cultures that exist in Tel Aviv. Because if you've never been to Tel Aviv, uh, it's not the capital of Israel, but it is the largest city. And it has a huge immigrant population because it has the whole diaspora of the Jewish faith and culture there. So mm, okay. Often music, you can find Yemenites, you find Ethiopians, you find Eastern Europeans, you find everything, Africans. I took African dance class there. And so he saw that and he said, all right, Israeli music has to be all this stuff. Mm. He created a band that was a, a collaborative group of sometimes like 30 people on stage singing in different languages, different rhythms, different styles of music, but all of that as one voice. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna go find that dude because he knows a roadmap. Right. <laughs> and so I How'd did. you I, discover him? I'm sorry, for, how'd you run across him? I, ha I used to subscribe to this magazine called Global Beat. Okay. The CDs used to come with like- That's not like Tiger Beat, is it? Not like Tiger Beat, it's for grownups. <laughs> Um, but every three months, a magazine would come with all these different world musicians because, again, we didn't really have the internet. When was this? There's no Spotify. There was no. You had to buy a CD, right? It's like early 200s or 2000s. And um, so I would get this every two months, and they would have a CD with artists from all over the world. They curated, and he was on one of them. I was like, oh, interesting dude. And then I saw him live in LA in 2012 and that was pivotal because I actually met him in person and I saw him at a small show where he had brought together two Malian artists uh, Vu Fakature which is the son of Ali Fakature from Mali the like big Malian blues which is not blues because blues came from there but anyway the son of Ali Fakature and they had a collaborative project and I remember seeing them on stage and what I saw and heard was here we have people speaking different languages literally and different languages musically mm. but talking to each other they're having a conversation yes. and that is what I want and I had heard an interview the day before with Idan Rahel and this is why I went to the show where he talked about how you know he had played the classical piano he could do everything he thought he could do everything he wanted to do on the piano until he met these guys from Mali and then he was like oh wait I don't know how to bring the piano into this conversation like my scales are different than their scales like the rhythms are different than what do I do and he said he went back to his music teacher and his music teacher was like you're gonna have to learn how to play piano again and I thought that was so astute you know how beautiful that his teacher said, no, 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 you don't know how, you know how to play the Western way. You don't know how to play that, their way. You're going to have to unlearn. Mm. He learns, you can enter that conversation. And, 
And when I went to the show, that's, I saw the result of that. I saw someone playing a piano in a way that could converse with West African instruments and rhythms. And when I saw that, it was just like a light bulb going off. I was like, that's what I wanna do. My voice is somewhere in there. That's my path. Um, and so forward six years, I started finding my voice in uh, 2018 and decided wow. to go to Israel. Okay. Because he knew more than I did. Let me go track him down. I was a little stalker and, and was able to actually track him down. <laughs> I was a stalker. But um, I was able to find him and I met up with him in Tel Aviv and had, had the opportunity to talk to him about his process and share some of my ideas with him. And it was, it was really a dream come true. Really now, did he take your um, diligent pursuit of uh, engagement with him as stalking? Yeah. Okay, good. Just want to make that clear for the audience. <laughs> doesn't know the measures that I went to to find him. <laughs> ah, okay. Oh, who's that? Illegal. This is Ginger. Uh, it was nothing illegal, but just some extraordinary efforts aided by the universe and just, just a lot of magic because what happened was it was such a big dream. It was so outrageous. Like, I'm going to go meet, I mean, for those of you who don't know, Idel, Idel Rachel is like the biggest Israeli star. Like he's, he, it'd be like, I'm going to go meet, I don't know, I'm gonna go track down Justin Timberlake. I don't know who's even famous right now, but someone at that level, I'm gonna no, go get his number and I'm gonna call him and see when he wants to have coffee with me. That's what I did. Right. <laughs> and it and he did. People were so, I was so invested and I was so absolutely obsessed with this idea and so insane. Like I quit my job. I bought a ticket to Israel before I, I didn't know anyone there. I didn't even know if I was gonna be able to meet him, but I just knew I was just, I have to go. And it all worked out. The universe so conspired. I know you're gonna remind me of this later, but the universe so conspired for this to happen. And it set off a web series that I started um, because after talking to Idan, he, he gave me an idea for a way to connect travel and music through visual media. And so I took that and ran with it because he said, take it, it's yours, your idea. And um, I invited an Ethiopian musician who I met because on my way to Israel, I stopped in Ethiopia um, because it's, it's a country I had always wanted to see. I had always it's loved- a beautiful um, place. Culture. Turns out we have a friend in common there now. We do, we do. And growing up in LA where there are a lot of Ethiopians and Eritreans, people always thought I was Ethiopian. Mm. So I was like, let me go check out this place. And I met a musician there who plays a traditional instrument called a masinko. And he had that same kind of fire and curiosity about blending different cultures and music. And so I said, hey, you know, I'm going to Israel, but then I'm going back to Brazil. We should collaborate. And he said, yeah, definitely. And, um, and I said, well, look, I'm not coming back to Ethiopia, but if you wanna to come to Brazil, we can do something there. And lo and behold, you know, what, a month later, he's like, so when are the dates? When should I come? <laughs> and I thought, okay, here's a chance to put what I've learned from my travels, travel and music, because in these places I was doing shows, I was meeting musicians, I was listening, I was taking classes. I was just trying to take in as much as I could of the, of the music of these mm -hmm. places. 
And I thought, okay, here's my chance to do my version of what Idan Rydell, Idan Rachel did. So I invited this Ethiopian musician to Brazil. Happened to be during Carnival. He stayed for three weeks. Okay. In the city behind you. And uh, we, you know, I first, you know, showed him the city, introduced him to a lot of musicians, not only in the city, but we also went to the countryside so he could hear the roots of where the samba comes from and all of the other contemporary styles. Right. Um, and then after taking all that in and the food and the, the culture and everything and seeing the ocean for the first time because Ethiopia is landlocked, you know, after taking all that in, we ended up doing some shows. We recorded uh, in Salvador and in Sao Paulo. And I filmed everything on my cell phone and uh, it turned into a web series. So somehow I was able to <laughs> bring the two loves together and it felt really right. Um, I feel like it really connected with people and I just want to keep going. Well, is there a choice? You do it so naturally, you feel compelled to do it and you go after it, you know, and, and that's the thing like uh, you and I both and we've had these conversations, we are divinely inspired uh, to set out without really knowing where we're going. We have an idea and we go in that direction and things open up for us yeah. piece by piece, yeah. you know? And it does require a great amount of faith, a great amount of knowing that no matter what, we're, we'll be all right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think not everyone feels um, safe enough to do that kind of exploration. Yeah. and uh, adventure making and i you know i salute you on or for that sense of adventure that sense of creation out in the world and uh you know as a community builder that's what you're doing you're building community you're bridging borders uh it's what we're it's what i'm doing with fly brother and and so i really am just you know in honor in awe of that and honored to have you amongst the inner circle. So, <laughs> so slightly changing the subject a bit back to your life in Brazil, what are some of the, I would say, name a couple of the high points of living <laughs> in Brazil and then also a couple of your biggest challenges. Ooh, can we think back? Cause I have been there 25 years. I went there when I was uh, a zygote. No. <laughs> um, That's that biology training coming in. <laughs> and I don't think I've used that word since eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, and, and you know, it sounds so trite, everyone says this nowadays, but there is a, there is a soul connection. There's a connection I have to that land, hmm. to to an ancestral connection I have that I don't know how to put a voice to, but it pulls me back. It's like there's this chord that just, I shouldn't say it pulls me back. It welcomes me back. It's like this, it's always a soft place for me to land. Home. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's not the home I was born in, but in some ways it feels like the home of my spirit. Mm. Um, I have had high highs and low lows living there, but I have always felt held. I have always felt safe. 
I have always felt that I was allowed to be there. And I don't mean in terms of like visas and stuff like that, which those also came ridiculously easily. So that was something that let me know that I was meant to be there. But you know this about Brazil and especially Bahia, the, the spirituality of the place, the spiritual energy of the place is very strong. And if you are not meant to be there, you will be put out. Put out. Not get out, <laughs> put out. <laughs> they will put you out. Booted. There are stories of people who didn't listen. And spirit made it very uncomfortable for them to stay. And I've always had the opposite. I've always had the, it's always been like, oh, come here, baby. You know, like grandma, like, come here, baby. Just, yes. Just sit in my lap, just, it's okay. It's okay. It's taken care of. You got your uh -huh. home. You have the beach. You're good. And so I think that's a big part of what keeps me there. Um, it feels good to me. It feels uh, like I vibrate at the vibe of Bahia. And, and I know that you've felt this traveling too. There are things of my personality and my essence that here are problematic. Like I'll go up and talk to anyone on the street. I'm touchy-feely. You know, there's just stuff about me that here was like weird. I had to suppress there. It's normal. Sure. There you go to the bus stop. Everyone's going to talk. They've never seen you before. They'd be like, oh, honey, that perfume smells good. Where'd you buy that? Really? Oh, don't you live around the corner? Yeah, I think I know your mom. I mean. Now, as a Southerner, I'm okay. used to that kind of engagement. But I know having lived in California, most people don't engage that way. I, I had some specific experiences. I, I was in Brazil until 2000. I was in Bahia specifically. Mm, okay. And you know, and, and this is something else with traveling. You don't realize this till you leave the US. There are different concepts of um, personal space. Sure. You know, how close you can stand to a person before it comes awkward and also eye contact. Mm. So in Bahia, the personal space is much smaller than in the States. And people make eye contact. People will stare. Like here, it's like, don't stare at us. So you fall down, everybody's staring at you. Like it's not a faux pas. And so have, I was there for four years and then moved to New York to start flying with American Airlines. And I took that with me. I had, I had changed because my whole thing was like, if I'm going to live here, I'm going to do my best to become Brazilian. I'm not going to hold on to those things. Americans do this. Let me do this. So I really, I, I shifted all these things in me shifted. And I remember I, I was staying in the Bronx my first month there and I could tell I was looking at people for too long and it was taken as aggression. Mm, and so I had to start. Yes. I don't mean to laugh. I know what, I'm laughing because I know what you mean. Like, <laughs> like you're trying to start a fight. Yeah. 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 And I was like, oh, wait, okay, hold on. That's not okay. Here. I just remember really quickly having to train myself to uh, shift the body language code, code shifting. A hundred percent. So you were, you, you, you've been back and forth. What have been some of the, so, so, Sao, uh, sorry, Sao Paulo, which is kind of my home space in Brazil. It's a place where I feel alive and, and energized and uh, exhilarated, you know? I feel like I vibe at the speed of Sao Paulo, which has, it, it's, it's a tropical New York. 
You know, it's not up and down on a grid. It's undulating with hills. It's got streets that kind of ramp around. It's, it looks like Gotham City from like the, the, the Batman movies from the 90s. And I have always thrived there in that environment and that big old mess. And um, I and, and the thing is, I, I do enjoy Salvador and I enjoy cities on the coast. For me, they they tend to be a little bit slow. Um, but then, at least they were that way in my late twenties, early thirties. Mm-hmm. Now, I may actually enjoy them a bit more because I'm in a different space in life where I don't need to be in the midst of all the hubbub, you know. Right. But while I was in Sao Paulo, it was it was a city that just really made me feel like. This is what I am here for, the, <laughs> all of it. The 20 million Brazilians that I engaged with in some way uh, during my few years there. And um, that said, two, two questions. So I'll ask the first one. Um, you mentioned you feel safe in Brazil and in, in, in Salvador. And I know you mean like energetically safe. You feel like you are cradled. But what about like actual physical safety as a woman, as a black woman, traveling often by yourself. Uh, yeah, in that way, I don't feel safer in Brazil. That is, that's a challenge in Brazil. It's a big challenge, and it's something that that can that can become exhausting. Um, so, are you always on guard? Are you all, you're always kind of on the lookout for potential danger? But I think women we have to learn to do this anyway. Um, but it's just, it's at a little higher level in Brazil, just because there's a lot less um, public security. You can't call the police if something happens, they're not gonna come. They might be the perpetrators. So as bad as people talk about police in the US, they are worse in the US, or I mean in Brazil. Um, So you just have to be really street smart. There are places, I don't go to at night, or if I go, I'm gonna go by Uber. Okay. Um, there is the whole question of drugs and arms, which when I first moved to Salvador was not as big of an issue as it is now. So that brings in a whole other element where like there are just some places you can't go. Like you don't, you don't even take a chance mm. because there's like territories and the issue of that and then outbreaks of violence that you know sometimes end up on on tv where you see rival factions warring against each other so that that is a reality uh, but that being it's not something that keeps me from living it's kind of like you keep it in the background you're aware of it you kind of kind of keep the you know your feelers out you keep your attention open to me uh, community is vital in this, especially as a black woman living alone. I don't have family that I can call on if something goes down, but I do have a network of friends. I choose to live in a neighborhood that it's not like rich, chic apartment buildings where I would be one more random person. I live in a neighborhood of houses. The family next door to me has lived there for 60 years. They all know me. When I get back now, they're going to be like, where were you, baby? We we haven't seen you. This this, this happened. They know all my business. That's good. Because if something goes down, they will be there. I have seen people get beat down in the plaza right in front of my house. I told you about that, right? 
I mean, not that right. I'm a fan of beatdown. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> okay, can I tell this? Was one? it a funny beatdown? Oh my gosh. It kind of was because they deserved it. So there's like, you know, like pocket thing, people stealing cell phones. It's viral in Brazil. Um, and so some, this is the sad part is he was like 12 or something. He was like a, a, oh, a kid. This woman's, yeah, stole this woman's cell phone out of her bag, was trying to run away. This is right in front of my house. And there's a little plaza in front of the house. The neighborhood was not having that. So everyone saw it happen. Unlike what happens in some neighborhood where it's like, oh, well, I didn't see that. The men who were there on the plaza went after him and got the phone back. And then you don't come into this neighborhood and do that ever again. You don't. I never saw the child again. And while part of me, you know, I do not condone child violence, it made me feel safer knowing that if that were me, it wouldn't be just me against sure. it. My neighborhood is going to stand up and be like, no, she lives here. Yeah. You don't come here and do that. And Community. so that to me, if you are choosing to be an expat, that is something to really consider. Is you, if you, especially if you go by yourself. And even if you go with your family, you need community. So you might want to live in that fancy apartment, high rise, where you know it's like you're Miami Beach, but you might be anonymous in that place, yeah. and you might be a target because mm. they don't know where the money is. Versus my neighborhood, I just walk around. They just, hey, how you doing? What's up? Hey, come over. We're gonna have coffee tomorrow. You know. Right. It's just, it feels like extended family in the way that you probably experience in the South. Um, sure. And I know that some people, I have, I have seen some Americans get offended by this. Instead of seeing it as, wait, this can be really beneficial to you. You don't want to be anonymous when you are an expat. You don't want to be a target. You got to be smart about it. You don't walk around with like, you know, all your designer stuff and Ro Rolex and whatever. But you do want to be known. You don't want to be invisible. And so another important, you know, reason for knowing some of the language, for starting, you know, for engaging with the language. And certainly you would think that people who plan to move to a place as opposed to just visiting would still have the desire or at least recognize the importance of learning the language. But you know, listen, I lived off and on in Germany with my former partner for five years and I never learned German. So well, Germany's hard because the German speaking. It, it is hard and we only ever spoke English in my house. And but that's no excuse. <laughs> and it's also no excuse that I, I already speak Spanish and Portuguese, you know, because I was in Germany. And, you know, so my point is I have to take my own medicine. I have to take my <laughs> own medicine. Um, so what would be one of the biggest challenges that you feel like you face? It, it, would that have been it? Would, would the safety be one of the biggest challenges for you uh, for living as a black woman in Brazil, black American woman in Brazil? Safety is a challenge. I'm gonna say the second challenge, and I'm gonna say that because of in, in light of current events, which um, so much of what's happening in the US is also happening in Brazil. You mean like from a socio-political and a cultural perspective? Yeah, and like, you know, Black Lives Matter, as well as 
kind of a, a, a right-leaning yes. presidency. Brazil's got their version of Trump. His name is Bolsonaro. He's Trump on steroids without mm. checks and balances of the government. Um, so that can be very painful and exhausting to have to deal with it on both fronts. Um, you know, I'm going back to, you know, they're the second highest country in terms of, you know, pandemic deaths. And there's really nothing being done on the national level to ameliorate that, nothing. Um, and that's, that's sad and it's challenging. Um, the political situation, uh, Brazil's politicians are not accountable to their population. So there's so much potential that the country has that's not realized because the government doesn't think. There's also, um, there are class and racial issues that can be exhausting. And I find often that uh, African-Americans go there with a perspective of having experienced racism classism and colorism in the, in the US and they kind of assume that it's the same in Brazil, that it functions the same, but it doesn't. Um, in the same way where you speak English in, 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 in you know, England and in the US, but the grammar is different, the way we write things, the way we express things is differently different. And so um, the racism in, in Brazil in some ways is, is, is more complicated because it's not black and white like it is here. literally it's not just black and white right not black and white it's very gray and i think what we don't realize as americans is as difficult as jim crow and segregation were on our population they made it very clear who was friend and who was foe who was with you and who was not take that away and you have brazil so you have a population that is majority black, but does not claim that, that does not vote like that, that does not stand together like that. You have a generation of youth that is starting to, because they're pulling from all these other references. And what I see in general, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, is that the you know, youth in Africa as well, millennials, let's call them, in Africa, in, in Europe, in uh, uh, Americas, and I, I speak of youth of the diaspora because there's so much communication between. Sure. I think that there's a different sense of identity forming out of, hey, we're all Afro descendants. We're right. all kind of having some of the same issues. And we're all like, there are all these things that can reference the struggle in South Africa, the struggles of, you know, um, of the Portuguese, Portuguese colonies in um, Africa. Uh, America struggles, Hades, they, they have all these references, Brazil, Palmares, and their whole movement. Sure. And drawing from all of those things, and I feel like they are very aware of their identity as uh, African descendants. You're right. That I mean, that's something that we only had books to, to tell us about back when we started traveling. And now everybody's got you know, there is social media, there is the internet that allows that knowledge to be spread and therefore the, the empowerment to happen, yeah. that visibility be, to be activated, uh, yeah. which is, it's wonderful to watch, to witness. That's a beautiful part. The frustrating part is that the, the system, the, the mechanisms for change in Brazil 
the 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 structures are so old and so they're so they're like it's like they're still from the plantation it, it mm. and they need to they need to be put away and and new structures social economic same same as our work here in the states but it's just gonna be harder there you know they they're they've been it's 500 years of of colonialism you know it, it's not colonialism of the portuguese now but the way the society is set up those same portuguese landowners are the ones who have all the wealth in the land in brazil aside from immigrants who came and you know the situation in brazil with immigrants was you know at at the end of slavery in 1888 brazil's majority black by like mm -hmm. and so there was a campaign of whitening where um, you know, the slaves were, there was no reparations. There was no transition. It was just like, you're not a slave today, leave. And, you know, poor whites who were starving in Italy or Germany um, were invited to come and they were given yes. land. And so you, they started off with wealth, wealth is land. And so you, in the Southeast, as you know, um, you see generations of immigrants uh, who are not Portuguese, who were able to accumulate wealth and who have entered the upper classes. Particularly in Sao Paulo, yes. Italian, Syrio, Lebanese, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, Germans, of course. Yes. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's supremely complex, absolutely. But, or so is the US. It's just different. It's not any better or worse, it's different. Different. I, I feel like we we it was helpful to have things delineated here. Mm. I we agree. Yes. That process there, so that there's not the unity that we had here during the civil rights movement. That's going to be harder to figure out there, and and that sure. needs to happen for there to be change. Honestly, I do believe that that was the benefit of the one drop rule in the United yeah. States. We knew who was who, which allowed, again, for the unification of forces of, of effort. And it did not mean that we didn't have colorism. It did yeah. not mean that we didn't have intra-racial discrimination and, and all of that. But at the same time, with everybody kind of knowing what the game was and what the deal was, mm -hmm. we were able to achieve much more success in our push for equality and you know while that push is still ongoing you know when you look at the u.s brazil and south africa as kind of the i i call them the three different flavors of neapolitan ice cream you know 98 percent of those ingredients are the exact same it's only the two percent that makes a difference in the taste and the color but mm. you know in the u.s we've got the, the the smallest percentage of people of african descent and yet We've had a president. So on the uh, as we wrap this conversation up, what do you love most about living in Brazil? <laughs> I love my neighborhood. I love my neighborhood. It's like all the way up. I'm looking at your little map. All the way up at the end of that. It's in the uh, on the northeastern corner of Salvador. It's called Itapuan. Okay. It's a fisherman's village. It's now like incorporated by Salvador. Um, Vinicius de Moraes lived there. Dorival Caymmi wrote songs about it. 
And it's just, it charms me. It charms me. My, uh, my next door neighbors have been there for three generations. They are the children of fishermen and Bayanos Jacaraje. You know, Sunday morning, they used to go out before the pandemic, they'd make coffee and cake and sit out in the plaza, and sell coffee and cake to people coming back from church. And they'd sing sometimes. And if you sit there with them and, and, you, and you just listen, you hear the songs they sang as children and they talk about the games they play and who lived over there and, and the kids that live there. And you tell you all about the history of the neighborhood. It's slower, which I know you're not so into the slow thing, but I, I really enjoy the pace of life there. It's um, kind of moves like the ocean. It ebbs and flows. There's the ocean. There's, you know, I can walk out of my house and in five minutes, I'm on one of the most beautiful beaches of Brazil, in my opinion. And that's really important to me in terms of quality of life. Um, everyone in the neighborhood, you know, it's, it's a, in my opinion, a mostly black neighborhood. And so I learn a lot about the, about black Brazilian culture living there, just from seeing spontaneous things remember Cida? Did you ever go to Cida? No, no. She's one of the most famous Bayanas of Akaraji. She actually died um, at the end oh. of last year. She lived right across the plaza from me. And she was, just to, to let the audience know what a Bayana de Akaraji is. Uh, so Akaraje, I used to say it was the Big Mac of Bahia. It's kind of that thing. It's like, if you go to Bahia, you gotta eat an Akaraje. It is like a, think of a hush puppy. Or if you've been to West Africa, it's called Akara. And it's made from uh, black eyed peas. So they make like a fritter, but it's bigger. It's like about that. But it's a fritter basically out of black eyed peas instead of corn. And it's fried in um, red palm oil what they use for for cooking in most of west africa i think and then they cut that open and they put okra in it a mix of okra it's called karuru they put like a little salsa thing with tomatoes and onions and vatapa which is like this paste it's like if you've been it's kind of, it reminds me of shiro but shiro is tastier it's kind of like a paste made of like bread i don't know what's in it but Anywhere you go in Bahia, if you want a snack, you will find a Bayana Jacaraje on the corner. And you can smell it because the dende oil, which is the red palm oil, has a very particular smell. And, and you just follow your nose and you'll get to the Bayana Jacaraje. And you, you buy them. When I first got there, they were 50 cents. And she put it, wrap it up in uh, uh, some paper and give it to you. And you got your Jacaraje. Your and you know, it's it's you basically just described basically every auntie and grandma and you know older older lady, mostly black, uh, in most places in the South. You know, and that's you know Bayana uh, for folks uh, listening or, or watching this. Uh, on one hand, means uh, a woman from Bahia, but it also refers to a woman, an older woman, a community leader you know, a, a matriarch of the community, very African, very, it, it's, it's, it's a woman, the African dress with the head wrap, uh, generally white, 
the, the, the clothing and the head wrap. And uh, they just represent the mother nature. They represent that caring soul mm. that we know about when we are raised with the women who love us, you mm -hmm. know? And that, that's what I understand of Ayana to be. Uh, mm. And a lot of those, you know, songs from the 20s and 30s, old school uh, samba, they, they are homages to the Bayana. Uh, even some of the songs that Carmen Miranda ended up singing. Exactly. Yeah. She, she kind of, you know, she, she took that, that personage, what was the word? Personage, yeah. I was gonna, it's, it's a hard word to say. <laughs> Persona. But, but that's, that's what she modeled after with the turban, with the fruit. Yes. You know, they don't wear fruits in their hair. But <laughs> she modeled herself after that personage because it was so clearly Afro-Brazilian. It was like, you sure. know, you were not going to mistake that for Argentina or Chile. or no, right. That was the essence of Brazil. Right. And yeah. even I, I read, you know, that she was even criticized by other Brazilians for saying, like, why are you wearing that black mm -hmm. street clothing? You know, right. when when she was in Hollywood films, which that's a whole other story, uh, tragic, but at the same time, you know, a talented lady, yeah. Carmen Miranda. It's all been the same thing all over, and I think that's it's important to note that just because you know people think they will end up in some utopia, and yeah. uh, you know, you like you said, your neighborhood is charming. It's a little piece of a little bit of magic. It's enchanting, mm -hmm. you know. And yes, it comes with some of the realities of life on this planet. Mm -hmm, it does. But I think you tend to find, again, the magic. You find the glitter. You find the rainbows. You find the the cotton candy clouds. And I, I'm not making fun of it. I, I just feel like that's what that's what makes life worth living. Absolutely. Because the sad stuff will find you. <laughs> <laughs> right. rainbows and unicorns and glitter yeah, the so. show ain't but and like you said i mean it's it's so yeah yeah i feel you if you uh you might as well look for the good stuff because the poop you <laughs> well, well, it, it'll be there for you to step in right uh <laughs> so on that note where can people find out more about you well have a couple of sites. I have um, an album that I actually recorded in Sao Paulo and put out. It's called Beginning. It's on Spotify. Um, I have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, oh, gosh, I, say, I should know the name of my YouTube channel. Well, my name is Elisa Sanders. So if you put in Elisa Sanders in YouTube, you'll see it. Um, also on Spotify, Elisa Sanders. Um, I have a Patreon page, which I'm publishing a, a lot of stuff, especially about finding my voice. There's a lot on Patreon. Um, the web series is on YouTube. If you put in Elisa Sanders, wherever there's music, you will find it. Episode three is coming out ooh, within a month. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, there's more to come. I spent a lot of, of last year as did many musicians recording. You know, we couldn't perform. So writing songs, recording songs. So there will be more, more stuff coming soon. <laughs> Wunderbar. Maravilhoso. Eu não sei por que falei em alemão, mas agora estou falando eu português, né? Não alemão, nada. Nada, nenhuma palavra. <risos> 
Boom. Uh, thank you so much, Elisa. Thank you, everybody who sat through this video conversation and podcast, whatever we're calling it. Please like it. Please subscribe. Please suggest it to your friends and family. Have them come by. Please stop by flybrother.net. Sign up for our mailing list so you can find out when we've got tours, when we've got trips to Brazil that we're offering, when we've got all kinds of amazing experience for, experiences for you, including season two of Fly Brother with Ernest White II, television travel docuseries about friendship and connection all around the world. Check it out on public television stations in the U.S., Create TV, eventually and very soon streaming around the world, flybrother.net. And again, for the third time, please like and subscribe to this YouTube channel. Elisa, Press that little button right there, do right now. <laughs> That's right. Press that button. Thank you so much. Muito obrigado. Obrigadão. Thank you for inviting me here to share my voice, to share my story. It is an honor. I am so inspired by you. And uh, I am so thankful to have met you, kindred, kindred traveler artist spirit. And I wish you all the best. I cannot wait to see all the episodes of Fly Brother because you are really bringing something to travel media that we need. You're bringing a voice that we need. You're bringing stories that we need. I want to hear them. Don't you want to hear them? You guys want to hear these stories. He's got fascinating friends. You want to meet them. <laughs> you know, if they have anything to go by, it's you, milady. So thank you so much for being here and glowing. Thank you, my brother. Thank you so it's much. It's a blessing. Oh my God. I love you so much. you again, darling. <laughs> Wunderbar. Again, I don't know why I say that. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> oh God. Mwah. Thank you to everyone for watching. Thank you, everybody. Flybrother.net. <laughs> Subscribe. Ciao. Welcome back to the Fly Brother Radio Show. As Elisa mentioned before the break, you can find out more at elisamusic.com. That's A-L-I-S-S-A music.com. You can reach out to me directly at ernest at flybrother.net or visit our website, flybrother.net. We also appreciate likes and follows on the Fly Brother Facebook page at facebook.com slash flybrotherfly, at Instagram at flybrother, and on YouTube at youtube.com slash c slash flybrother. Please share any questions, content, or stories that helps me help others thrive. Lastly, if you do enjoy the Fly Brother Radio Show, please rate, subscribe, and even sign up to make a monthly contribution to help keep Fly Brother in the air and on the air. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Fly Brother Radio Show. Have a phenomenal weekend and an amazing week. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>